Um, yeah, I have the gift of encouragement, Stasha. <clears throat> it's, it's a small gift, and that means I give small encouragement. So. <laughs> but uh, it, is, uh, it is challenging. All right. Uh, we got started on Micah f- a month ago and didn't get very far into it, so I thought probably it'd be useful to go back and, and uh, uh, lay the foundation again and then work our way through the book quickly today. Um, the date of the book, he's roughly contemporary with Isaiah. In fact, probably quotes Isaiah. It's not always clear who's quoting whom, but in chapter 4 in the opening verses is a passage that comes right out of Isaiah. It, it, if, if you've read Isaiah at all recently, then you'll be well familiar with it. Um, but he's a contemporary of Isaiah's. Uh, as Isaiah, he is a, a, a prophet to the southern kingdom, uh, to Judah. The summary of the book, and here's my attempt at summarizing seven chapters and one basic statement. The incomparable... I thought I changed that. The incomparable Lord's coming is the... Big, is the big point of the book. The Lord is coming, and he's going to have some purposes in his coming. One is to destroy the land and the temple. Because Judah has become so corrupt, um, judgment has to come. Uh, and this isn't when the, land, the, the, the city is destroyed. It's still another 130 years to go before the city and the temple are destroyed. But Micah is looking through all this and seeing the same thing that Isaiah is seeing under the inspiration of the Spirit and is is being led to threaten Jerusalem. You're in trouble. You need to pay attention. But ultimately, he will bring Israel surprising salvation. And that's one of the key ideas of this book. It's it's really, um, there, there's, a, there's a whole passage where I call it sh- uh, shocking reversal, as we'll see, um, but ultimately bring Israel salvation as a blessed royal people over all the earth. What I didn't include in this statement is the opening and closing statements of the book. Look in Micah 1, verses 1 and uh, 2, uh, specifically perhaps verse 2 and 3. Hear, O peoples, all of you, and let uh, and, and listen O earth and all it contains. He's not, he's not really addressing this book to Judah. Judah is the subject, if, as, it, as it were. But this is, a, this is a warning to the nations of the earth. Look at chapter 7. Uh, verse uh, 15 or, or 14 shepherd your people with your scepter the flock of your possession which dwells by itself in the woodland in the midst of a fruitful field let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old Bashan is um, the uh, on the east side of the Jordan River and uh, Gilead is is at the it's what we call now the Golan Heights so uh, as in the days of old, and I have that circled in my text because it's important. Let me show you why. As in, verse 15, as in the days when you came up, uh, came out of the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will, will see and be ashamed of all their might. This is a book addressed to the nations about the judgment 
uh, that God is going to bring to, to Judah and Jerusalem. Are you with me here? Yes or no? Yeah? That, that's, odd. that's kind of odd, isn't it? Why, why would you be addressing nations when you're talking about Jerusalem, the temple? Um, so this is where we're going with this. The structure of the book, you have an introduction in verses 2 to 5, uh, then just two, two basic sections in the book. The Lord warns the nations of talionic justice, and we'll define that very quickly, of talionic justice against his people and all the nations, but also of redeeming Israel. But then the, the other part of the book, verse, chapter 6 and 7, the incomparable Lord's covenant lawsuit will finally move Israel to await his deliverance and bring the nations into abject submission to himself. This is all a warning to the nations. Here, here's the basic point. I, uh, God, God is saying, I am angry with the world. And I want you to see how angry I am. I'm going to judge my own people. So if he's going to judge his own people, what's he going to do with the rest? Yeah. Are you with me here? This is the basic message, of, as I understand it, of the book. Judgment's coming to Judah. But that's a precursor. Uh, we'll quote from 1 Peter a little bit later. Uh, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will happen to those who are outside? Are you with me? Yes, no? In, in Peter, the judgment is persecution of believers. In Micah, it's judgment for sin in Judah. Well, if he's going to judge his own people who he brought into relationship with himself, what's he going to do with people who are openly op opponents of everything he does and everything his people do? You see the point? So, so judgment's coming. Um, so let's get into it briefly here. Oh, gosh. Um, the Lord's terrifying co coming to judge is a warning to all the earth's people. Verses 2 to 5. We read verse 2. Verse 3. For behold... The Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this, now, now mind you, this is a message addressed to the nations. All this is for the rebellion of, Je of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? If God judges his people for high places, a high place is, we, we usually, because of our translation of that term, we usually think of it as on a hill you have a, 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 a sanctuary. Sometimes high places are in valleys. I, I, I don't know quite what to do with that. Uh, but it's, it's the word high place. Bama in Hebrew is a word that means something like a cultic center for, a, for false worship. Are, are, are you with me here? Doesn't, it's not so much geographic as it is a reference to the worship of false gods. So uh, this is what one of my professors said years and years ago. He said, uh, um, when Calvinistic missionaries go into a new, new area, they always preach the creatorhood of God first. Because if you accept their message, you have to decide now. You can't 
remain on the fence. When other groups go in, they preach the love of God. But when you have one God who loves you and a lot of gods who don't, that love God who loves you goes right on the God shelf right alongside all the other gods who don't love you, and that way you get some help when you're in trouble and you can go to him when you need him. But if, if the God that you accept is the creator and made your gods, that is the sun, the moon, the storm, if he made your gods and your gods are mad at you, what about the guy who created the gods you've been serving? Are you with me? They are forced to make a decision. And here is what Judah has, has not wanted to do. They're glad to have God as their covenant-giving God because they can run to him and get help in time of trouble. But they haven't made the decision, but this is the creator. The son is not a god. The son is a lamp. In, in Hebrew, in Genesis 1, uh, he made the... You remember this? He made the greater light... light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. That, that's a good translation. There's nothing wrong with it. But the Hebrew word is not simply light. It's a, it's a different word. Or is the word for light. This is ma'or. It has an M prefix. And often that refers to an instrument for doing whatever the main root word means. So what, what's an instrument for light? A lamp. So God made the big lamp to rule the day and the little lamp to rule the night. You don't worship the lamps in your house? I suppose. So if you had, Israel never came to grips with the fact that the sun is just a lamp. Always they thought it was a great power that ruled everything. Are you with me? So um, they have these, Jericho is moon town. It was a, place for the worship, worship of the moon. Beit Shemesh is the house of the sun, the sun god, the god of justice in ancient Near Eastern religions. Are you with me? And they, they, they were captured by this because they were so focused on what is material, they couldn't understand that the most important things in life are things you cannot put your hands on and touch and manipulate. The most important things in life are the, are the intangibles love and relationships. Are, am I making sense to you? Intangible things that determine all of life. And so Israel has had to struggle with that. Uh, they were largely debunked from that in the Babylonian captivity, but they substitute a new, a new idolatry, an idolatry for the law, um, in my opinion. So here we go with Israel. We've got the introduction. Let's go on to the uh, first main section. Judgment is coming for the nations, but it begins with God's people. So 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Are you with me here? So uh, where's Rick? Did Rick... Leave? Yeah. Rick introduced us and left. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Joe's here. Oh, good. Hi, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to keep record of that. <laughs> there goes his perfect attendance record. Uh, the, the, issue, the issue here is 
it's not just page two that you've got to, have you read page two? It's all over the place. Jesus says more about the wrath of God than anybody else in scripture, in the New Testament. So the wrath of God is coming and it, and, and it starts by dealing with all sin and, it's, and it starts with the household of God. In Israel, it begins with people who are specifically overtly rebellious against God. In the church, it, it starts with people who are already in a love relationship with God. But we're so comfortable in this world. God has to start taking all our comforts away so our only comfort left is in him because he knows he is the best comfort that, that is available. If we are comforted in him, we will be comforted if lions are awake around us all night. Does this make sense to you? So he's removing from us all of our supports so that the only thing we have left is him. And when we find out that the only thing left is him, it's, it is in that, in that case a matter of last resort. But we realize that he was the only resort we ever had anyway. Does this make sense to you? So this is Peter's point of view on that. He goes on here, so let's move on. Verses 6 to 5.15, the Lord warns the nations of talionic justice. Got to talk about what this talionic justice thing is. There are two sections in this passage, 1, 6 to 3, 12, and chapters 4 and 5. Um, in the first, he will talk to Israel as a whole. He includes Samaria, the northern kingdom. Yes? Is that, is that word comfortable to you, Samaria? Yeah? So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But he talks to them as a whole because they're, they're one in all this. Samaria has taught Judah how, how, taught Jerusalem how to worship. <laughs> Instead of Jerusalem teaching Samaria, Samaria taught Jerusalem how to worship. Ezekiel will say, there are two sisters from one mother. Their mother was, was Sodom. <laughs> one is called Samaria, the other is called Jerusalem. And the two sisters, Samaria was wicked, but Jerusalem, this is a hundred years later, but Jerusalem has outdone everything Samaria ever did. Egypt and Sodom watch you and they're ashamed of you because you're so sinful. <laughs> Yeah, it says a whole lot. The, the, the reality is that they're, they're one in their basic approach. What's remarkable is that there was enough of a remnant in Judah that it lasted as long as it did. Uh, you, you will know that there was only one dynasty in Judah, the whole of its, of its history from 1010 B.C. until 586 B.C., the House of David. I've forgotten how many dynasties there are in the northern in the northern kingdom, seven or eight different dynasties, and some of them only have one representative, and he might have only reigned two or three weeks before he's assassinated and replaced by somebody else. Are you, are you with me? So this this is a mess. This whole this whole country, all twelve tribes are a mess, and Micah is warning them: judgment must come. So the Lord, uh, by His plan, this is. One, uh, um, the Lord by his plan will bring talionic justice against Samaria and Jerusalem for their leaders in justice and deceit, even destroying the temple. And in the last days, finally in 4, four and 5, he will reverse his and the nation's plans, restoring Israel in his mysterious way 
when Israel will commit himself to follow him. So as we go through this, uh, we're talking about talionic justice. That's an odd term, so let me talk to you about it. Um, you know it from the biblical phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The idea is that judgment comes in the form of the sin committed. So you have biblical examples, Adam and Eve, who sinned by eating, so their punishment is to have a hard time getting food. Uh, or Jacob, who sins by cheating a father and a brother, so he is punished by being cheated by a, by a father and sisters. Um, there, this is carried out in a number of ways in these two chapters, and this will just be our quick covering of these couple of chapters. Um, in 1, 6 to 15, the names of the towns, look there at one, um, specifically look at verse 10, famous statement, tell it not in Gath, shout it not in Ascalon, um, comes from David's prayer at the death of King Saul. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, tell it not in Gath. There's a pun here. Gath is, you could, you could interpret it as tell town. And the punishment is that the message is going to be hidden from Gath. They're not going to get the message of the prophet. God is sending blindness, as he promised, as we've talked about in Isaiah chapter 6, or 7, uh, 6. The next town is Beit Ophrah, the house of dust. Um, we'll have to roll in the dust because of her shame and pain at the judgment that's coming. Are you with me here? So, Talionic justice. Here's here's your the names of your towns are spelling out the the, de the destiny that you have. Uh, Shafir is beauty town. Shafir means beautiful, uh, but they're going to suffer nakedness and shame. And Tsa'anan is a name that means something like uh, exit, go out but they will go out to captivity. Um, Beit Azel, or Eitzel, in Hebrew means something like near house, the, the, close, the close house, but they're going to have no protection. Why, why would it be good to have your house close? Because you can run into it and be protected, yes? No protection here. Um, then I have the name Marot, which is bitterness. And their message to them is that they're going to writhe in pain. Lachish sounds like another word in the same sentence, larekish. Lachish, larekish. You hear it? Yes. Hebrew Hebrew uses puns not to make to make funny statements. It uses puns to underscore the point of what you're trying to say in the passage. So, lachish is chariotry. So get ready for battle. Um, Moreshet Gath. Moreshet means a, 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 um, something like going away pres a present. And the outcome of this, their judgment is going to be get ready to depart for, just, uh, for captivity. Uh, Maresha is a Hebrew word that looks like, sounds like the word Yarash. To take possession of, somebody else is going to take possession of the town. The, the word Yarash. We often translate it to inherit, but the way it's used in the book of Joshua, uh, it means to dispossess the Canaanites. You're going to go into, we often translate to inherit the land or to inherit the cities, 
but it's they're going to dispossess them. They're going to drive them out or kill them. Well, the same thing. It's turning around. The history is turned around. What we saw in Amos is happening here too. What usually the prophets do with history is the saving work in the past becomes a model of what's going to follow in, in the saving work in the future. But now the saving work of the past is being inverted into a promise of coming judgment. Um, then Adullam, there's no pun here precisely. The text there, look down at verse uh, uh, 15. He first mentions Maresha. Um, Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Maresha. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Do you know anything about Adullam? Adullam is the is the place where the cave was where David hid from the from King Saul. The cave of Adullam. David, the king, is the glory of Israel. Now Israel's king is going to have to go back to Adullam and hide, hoping to get away from the judgment that's coming. Is that down near the Dead Sea? No, it's it's kind of southeast of Jerusalem a little bit, not, uh, southwest of Jerusalem just a little bit. Um, the, the point of all this is, oh, and, and we can carry it out further, all this is Talionic justice. This is what God's going to do to Judah. Uh, all these towns are in Judah. Not one of them is, is in the northern kingdom. All of them are in Judah. And, and this isn't going to be the case. This is 720 B.C., it's not going to be until 586 that you get this actually happening uh, because you see somebody else actually wrote this passage, right? Because nobody can know the future. <laughs> my, my professor for Homer said Homer didn't write the Iliad. It was written by somebody else of the same name. <laughs> So it wasn't Micah, it was somebody else of the same name. <laughs> or, or as, as an old joke that I have, uh, I have told over the years ends, well, if you're going to bring God into it, I can believe anything. <laughs> so the point is, Talionic justice is coming. But it's coming over a long time in Israel. Judah, Jerusalem has over a century of warning from both Isaiah and, and Micah, and they pay no attention, is the judgment just when it comes? Yes. yes. So they plot, chapter 2, verse 1, they plot iniquity, so God will plot disaster against them. In 2.2, they, they take somebody else's inheritance, they drive people out of their inheritance, so they will have no inheritance in Israel. In verse 6, they, they deny that disaster is coming. So verse 10, they'll be overtaken by disaster. In verses 3, 1 to 3, they refuse the cries of those whom they are oppressing. So their own cries, verse 4, will go unheard. In 3, 5, they have deceiving prophets who don't want Micah to prophesy. So the prophets themselves will be deceived. They cheat at selling. So, verses 13 to 15, it'll mean hunger and famine for them. They have ruinous policies. 
so they will, they will know ruin among the nations. This begins to sound familiar, doesn't it? Hmm? Yeah. Um, it's hard to read this and not think of our own day and what's going on in our own nation. Uh, so, um, verses 2, 1 to 3, 12, destruction is coming for Israel's leaders, their unjust judges, and mercenary prophets for the city and the temple. So, just point out a few things in this passage. It's uh, 2, 1 to 3, 12. Um, in verse... Um, one, uh, these are people who scheme iniquity, work out evil on their beds. They covet fields and then seize them. Uh, they find legal ways to put a veneer on what they do so that they can do it, what is completely illegal. Uh, so, verse uh, 6, do not speak out. So they speak out. But if they do not speak out, what, what's going on here? Probably what's going on is they're saying to the prophets, quit prophesying. I don't want to hear you anymore. <coughs> but God's given them, as, as you know from Amos, and you know this from um, <coughs> Jeremiah, Jeremiah who said, I'm not going to speak for you anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm fed up with this, the way they're treating me. But he said, when I, the longer I kept silence, the word was fire in my bones, and I couldn't hold it in any longer. So Micah is under the same compulsion. So do not speak out. So they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his, are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one who walks uprightly? You don't like the message. Maybe it's because you're not walking uprightly. Um, so he will he will call uh, the prophets to account. Look look at chapter three verse one. Here now heads of Israel, rulers of the house of Israel. So he, he calls them to justice because they should know justice. They should do justice. That's their job. That's what they're all about. But instead, verse 2, uh, you hate good and love evil. You tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones. In Hebrew, it's not just break their bones. You shatter their bones. You, you pulverize their bones and chop them up for the pot as meat for the kettle. And they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. In verse 5, he addresses the prophets. Um, you who lead my people astray. Um, verse, four, verse 6, therefore it will be night for you without vision. I just say, a prophet, one of, the, one of the Hebrew terms for a prophet is a seer. But these seers can't see because everything's dark. Fred? You know, we don't have enough information really to answer that question. Um, there were all over the ancient Near East, there were people who, inv who were involved in what we would call prophecy, prophetic work. Um, 
and the kings surrounded themselves with people like that. They were often trained for it. Um, I could go into a little more detail on that, but uh, probably you would go in for profit school, and <laughs> uh, it would. It has to be a profit, a for-profit organization, if it's profit school. <laughs> 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 but uh, you'd go to prophet school and learn to be a prophet, and then the king would give you questions. You would go do your research and find a way to get an answer and, and then bring you back an answer, which was always uh, ambiguous. Uh, so, yeah, they're false prophets. Well, the thing you've got to understand is some of these guys were actually actuated by demons. And so a demon can tell you what he's going to do next week, and he'll do it next week, and it looks like you've prophesied the future. But a demon can't always be right because there are other demons who will keep him from doing what he wants to do, and there is God who will keep him from doing what he wants to do. You know, so the demon... No, they're not. They're very dangerous. So, so I want you to understand I am not a prophet, though I have predicted this next three months. It's called a syllabus. <laughs> so, on a given date, we're going to have class. Yes, well, I'm not. I am predicting the future, but it's all I'm doing is what a demon would do, telling you his plan, and then maybe he will be able to carry out, and maybe it won't. Why would other demons keep the demons? Because they're perverse. Sin is is self defeating. Sin is in its heart self-defeating. It is self-destructive. So even demons will keep other demons from doing what they want. Uh, haven't you studied any ancient mythology? Well, take Zeus and Hera. What do you know about Zeus and Hera? They hated each other. They were the king and the queen of the gods, husband and wife, and they hated each other and Hera was always trying to trip up Zeus, and Zeus was always trying to, to, to defeat Hera's plans. They're demons. They're self-destructive. They're self-canceling. That's what sin always is. Yeah. Uh, so I could go further with that, but we won't. Let's press on. Uh, verse 9, he returns to the heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. Verse 11 her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore on account of you, Zion will be a plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple will become a high place, a, a, a high, uh, the high places of a forest. It's 12 and I'm only halfway through the book. So we'll stop now and pick it up uh, next time with chapter 4. So I'll see you next week then. Let's close with prayer. Father, we see too much of our own nation in this. We see too much of our own days. If you do not move in and do some marvelous work of your spirit, we are certainly doomed as a people. The hard part of that is the righteous suffer along with the wicked. And so, Father, as we watch what may not happen in our lifetimes, um, as we watch, though, we know this will happen in our children's and grandchildren's lifetimes, give our, 
our beloved ones whom we leave behind as we move on in our in your plan for us give them unusual faith sustain them by your spirit but we plead with you father for the sake of many who think that this is this is normal this is the right way to live plead we plead with you for a movement of your spirit to bring the the life-giving power that he has into their lives bring them life from the dead give them give them faith teach them to live before you in a way that honors you even if the rest of the of the nation goes to hell in a handbasket father judgment surely must fall but will you not also be very gracious to your people um, so either give a great revival great outpouring of your spirit or give us great grace to face such times for, for father you have taught us it is time for judgment to begin with the household of god for us this means no wrath for us it means no justice the justice fell against jesus but for all the rest of the world if you will judge us what will be the end of those who are in opposition to your plan so so give us a heart of compassion for a wicked nation and uh, and keep us crying out for it for jesus sake we pray amen Second.